the word of the Lord from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians, the second chapter. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running and or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery to them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. When James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the United States, currently, the, pro- the poverty line for a household of four is $25,750. In Georgia, the rate of poverty, of poverty, seem not to be able to talk tonight, the rate of poverty is 16.9%. That means that somewhere around one out of every six residents of Georgia lives in poverty. That's 1,679,030 people. In Troop County, That rate is higher, 21.3%. That's one out of every 4.7 people. That means that you and I encounter poverty every day. It may be only in passing at the grocery store or the gas station, or maybe more directly with people we know, maybe even some family members. But at some point, each of us is likely to be asked we can offer assistance in some way. In West Point, which I think has a higher poverty rate than even the Troop County, daily people come to our church in need of assistance beyond the things that they get, uh, even through programs to which we contribute. There are different reasons people end up in poverty. Situational poverty is not uncommon. Medical bills can 
put people into poverty, a loss of a job. But we also encounter generational poverty, people who live in poverty for two or more generations. There can be multiple reasons for that, but in generational poverty, we often find hopelessness, an inability to see a way out of poverty. A lifestyle of simply surviving with not planning. If you are middle class, you probably have made plans for hard times, for retirement. But if you live in poverty, every day is a search for how you will eat, if you will have a place to live, how you will deal with family issues, unresolved health issues, things with your children. And in generational poverty, there are values and patterns that look very different from middle class values and patterns. Generational poverty often is looking at short term outcomes. But as middle class individuals, there's often values for education, for work, being perceived as a productive part of society. I speak of generational poverty tonight because those have to do with families. I want you to keep that in mind as we think about and we focus on really just this last verse of the passage that I read to you. Let me give you a little bit of background. I think you probably know some of these things. But the letter of Galatians uh, was written out of an urgent need. There were false teachers who had come out of Jerusalem who had gone around to the Gentile churches and begun to teach that in order to truly be a Christian... In order to be saved, one needed to to obey, to maintain the ceremonial laws of of Mount Sinai, the covenant of the Sinai covenant. That includes circumcision and dietary laws. Paul writes this letter to counter these claims. And in the first part of this letter, he is in, in essence making a defense both of his apostolic ministry and of the very gospel that he proclaims. He states that this gospel is not from man, that he has given it from Christ himself, recounting his Damascus Road conversion. But not to seem to be just like Paul out there in left field all by himself, as if Paul has something and whatever's going on in Jerusalem is different. Paul also wants to emphasize that the gospel that he is proclaiming is the same gospel that the apostles in Jerusalem are proclaiming. And so he tells of this meeting that happened in Jerusalem, a meeting between James, John, Peter, Paul, Barnabas and Titus, who had been brought with him. As Paul lays out his gospel, he emphasizes that as these apostles heard the gospel, there was nothing to add. It was not as if Paul had heard something, but he didn't get the whole message. Oh, yeah, Paul, you're right about all that. Jesus, I only have faith in Jesus but you, you left off the part about where you need to, to eat kosher. You need to go ahead and wrap that up and include that when you go out next time. That's, that's, that's not what happened at all. And in fact, we had a Greek fellow along with us. And he was welcomed and accepted in the Jerusalem church. 
And he had not even been circumcised. That is, there was a major part of the ceremonial law that, that he was not keeping. And yet, because of his faith in Christ, he was viewed as a brother and was accepted into the fellowship. So as Paul concludes his description of this meeting in Jerusalem, he writes this in verse 10. I'll say it one more time. Only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now, there are a few ways that you can read this last verse. All of them have to do with context and how you understand context. One might read this as a work required for salvation. So, they've been talking about circumcision. No, circumcision is not required. Just faith in Jesus. Oh, yeah. And remember the poor. Ah, okay. So, we don't need to worry about the ceremonial law. We just need to remember about caring for poor people. And if we do that, and we believe in Jesus, we'll be saved. Now, since you're the Sunday night crowd, I'm assuming alarm bells are going off for you right now. Now you're really worried about the Baptist in the pulpit. Some people have drawn this conclusion erroneously. The context, the immediate context, is about what is required for salvation. But the outcome was faith alone. Faith alone in Christ alone. We read a little bit more beyond these immediate verses. The problem becomes quite evident. If we were to say that caring for the poor is a work required for salvation, then we would be adding to the gospel. We would be adding our own work to the work which Christ has done on our behalf. In just a few verses, in in verse 16 of chapter 2, Paul is going to write, Yet we know that a person is not justified, not made right, not given right standing with God. A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because By works of the law, no one will be justified. And then, just a few verses beyond that, a very, very famous verse that maybe many of you memorized as a child. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So if we just go a little bit more into this chapter, it suddenly becomes clear there's no way that the care for the poor could be viewed as a requirement for salvation. That reading is wrong. One might also read this as a particularly first century concern. 
That is, we might contextualize it simply within what we know from, say, the book of Acts. There was great poverty in Judea and in Jerusalem, especially, especially within the Jerusalem church. A famine had wreaked havoc in this region. This had had devastating effect on all the inhabitants of Judea and especially of Jerusalem, where people lived more densely. And the more vulnerable members of that society had been affected far worse than others. We know that the office of deacon was created for the express purpose of watching after these vulnerable members of the church, in particular, widows. I mean, if you want to get real particular, Greek widows who, who may have been not getting, getting their full share of what was needed. These deacons had to make sure that all got the aid the church had set aside for them to receive. Beyond that understanding, we could even look at Paul's letters. Romans 15, he speaks to the particular nature of the poverty in Jerusalem. He writes, at present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Acacia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in Material blessings. I mean, in, in numerous places, like 1 Corinthians 16, Paul mentions this offering that he has been collecting in the churches on his mission trip that he's going to take back to Jerusalem. He wants them to make sure they have it ready for him when he comes. And so we might simply say that this is an issue that the church leaders we're concerned about in the first century. And what they're really talking about here in verse 10 of Galatians 2 is that very particular issue. It's about a first century matter. It doesn't really pertain to us in the 21st century. That's kind of missing the forest for the trees. I had a funeral this afternoon. Or I went up to it for a funeral. And as I came back, it struck me that there's another way that people misread this. That is, they spiritualize this. We should remember the poor. Oh, yes, the poor in spirit. We're all poor in the spirit. We're all, we're all poor in spirit. We all are in need of God's grace. And so um, what they really mean is let's be sure we tell everybody about the gospel. Well, then the question becomes, well, why did Paul take up the offering? Why was he taking up the offering? We step back and we look at a greater biblical and theological reading. Um, we, we get, a, a, I think, a different perspective. Because caring for the poor is something that is repeated over and over and over again in Scripture. It's a concern which starts in the law itself. Deuteronomy 15, verses 7 and 8. If among you one of your brothers should become poor... In any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart 
or shut your hand against your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Those are words that still speak to us. They speak to me. It's a term, compassion fatigue, right? You deal with people in need a lot. You get, you develop a kind of compassion fatigue. I think that's what God's warning about. Do not harden your heart. Maybe you don't even have compassion fatigue. Maybe you're just hard-hearted to begin with. Poor people. I need to go out and get a job. I've heard somebody say that in a church. We don't have to simply stay in the law. We might even say, well, I don't want to have to, you know, keeping the law, I'm not earning my salvation. Just because something in the law doesn't mean we don't practice it. When we come to the Psalms, we are taught that the plight of the poor is of great concern to the Lord. That he comes to their aid, responding to their cries for help. Let me just, I'm going to read some some verses from, from various Psalms. You just listen for this. Psalm 918. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Psalm 12, 5. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. Psalm 14, 6. You would shame the plans of the poor. But the Lord is his refuge. Psalm 34, 6. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Psalm 35, 10. All my bones will say, O Lord, who is like you delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. Psalm 47, 10. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Psalm 75. But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. Psalm 112.9. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. Psalm 113.7 He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. It's not only that, but those who faithfully serve the Lord seek justice for the poor. They defend their cause. They deliver them. Such as how the Lord describes the anointed king of Israel in Psalm 72. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. Today, tonight we read from Second Kings 4. That was a blessing for me. I, I, I used that chapter Thursday in, in a devotion that I gave uh, to some teachers. That starts with a widow. A widow of the sons of, of the prophets. You remember in that setting that she is being preyed upon by creditors. People who are taking advantage of her plight 
And it is now, she is now in the point where they are threatening to sell her children into slavery. And the Lord takes notice. Elisha becomes the means through which deliverance is brought for this widow. When we come to the New Testament, we find similar calls for all Christians to remember and care for the poor. But they are never presented to us as ways to gain our salvation. They're given a very different framework. Jesus himself, in his incarnation, is the first example of this. He leaves the riches of heaven and takes up life with the poor. And I mean that quite literally. In Luke uh, 2.24, Mary and Joseph are going to the temple to dedicate the Lord. An offering of dedication is needed. Firstborn must make an offering. There are several options that the Lord provides for people in different economic, economic situations. Do you know what the offering that Mary and Joseph give? Two pigeons. It's the offering of the poor. The poorest of the poor. Two turtle doves, two pigeons. Take your pick. This is what is provided for the poor. And this is what Mary and Joseph give. Jesus takes up residence with the poor. Paul writes of this in 2 Corinthians 8 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Paul says we are to emulate him, but why? Well, I think Jesus, Jesus helps us here in Luke 6, Luke 6, 32 and through 36. Jesus equates loving and giving to those who cannot give back with being God's children. That is, with acting like our Heavenly Father. He says, if you love those who love you, what benefit of that is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting nothing in return. I mean, sorry, expecting. Sorry, I I can't even, my eyes are going. Expecting to receive. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Heavenly Father is merciful. Did God love you because you loved Him back? Did God lavish His grace upon you because you had lavished so many gifts upon Him? No. Be like your Heavenly Father. Matthew 25, Jesus teaches us that the very fruit of our salvation, what it looks like to love, to be like our Heavenly Father, is marked by feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, welcoming the stranger, Visiting the sick and clothing the naked. These are the marks of God's children. When John writes in 1 John 3, 
By this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods, goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Paul says this, I mean, John writes this in the larger context. Of what what the evidence of being a child of God is. It's in 1 John 3.10. And this is exactly where Paul is going in Galatians. In Galatians 3.25, Paul writes, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus You are all sons of God through faith. So when we consider the call to remember the poor in this meeting in Jerusalem between Paul and Barnabas and Peter and James and John. We are to also see it as a matter of the implications of the gospel. They're not just talking about what is the gospel. But what are the implications of the gospel? The gospel has freed us from the external ceremonial laws. They were fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, the Gentiles didn't need to be circumcised. Jesus' sacrificial death for us, though, this has made us children of God. Therefore, we are not to live like orphans. We are to live like God's children. Just as our Heavenly Father is, we are to be. And Peter, Paul, Barnabas, James, John, they're all in agreement on this. To spiritualize, it's not wrong. We were all spiritually impoverished. We owed a debt we could not possibly pay. There was no way we could make up for the sin that we had committed. And then there was certainly no way that we could do the good for which God had created us beyond that. God looked upon us in our poverty. And he had compassion. He gave us a gift none of us could ever repay. Ever. This is the gift of eternal life that we have in Christ Jesus. And we accept this gift through faith. And in doing so, we become more than just righteous men and women. We become children of God, members of his household. The gospel implication of this, we are to live like God's children, doing his good works, loving others, seeking peace, bringing reconciliation, feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, visiting the sick and imprisoned, clothing the naked, welcoming the stranger, remembering the poor. I started this by speaking of generational poverty and how we find these things in generational poverty and how they keep being passed on to generation to generation. And yet we, in Christ, know the breaking of poverty. And God calls us to a very different cycle, one that is the cycle of love, of peace, of grace, one that we are to do over and over with each person that we meet, sharing what God has shared with us. These are the very concerns of our Heavenly Father. Let them be our concerns. Let us pray.